You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to episode 223 of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all, welcome to the podcast. With the last episode, we started to set the stage for the Battle of Prairie Grove. And with this show, we're going to pick up right where we left off, which was with Union Brigadier General James Blunt about to take his Kansas division and march south to Cane Hill, where he intended to fall upon foraging Confederate cavalry led by Brigadier General James Marmaduke. The commander of the Federals' Army of the Frontier, John Schofield, was sidelined by illness, so Blunt dispatched a courier to the telegraph station at Elkhorn Tavern, north of Fayetteville, with an urgent message for Major General Samuel Curtis, who, from his headquarters in St. Louis, was in charge of all Union forces in the Trans-Mississippi. As y'all no doubt recall, Elkhorn Tavern was the site of the Battle of Pea Ridge. Yep, and the telegraph line coming down from Missouri only went that far, and not all the way to Fayetteville. At any rate, Blunt informed Curtis of his decision to launch an attack, saying, I shall move on Marmaduke tomorrow morning, leaving my transportation at this point with a small guard shall strike him the next morning unless he runs. Hope to destroy him before he can be reinforced by Hindman. Curtis immediately wired Brigadier General Francis Heron to notify him that Blunt was about to attack the rebels at Cane Hill. Remember, Heron was in command of the two so-called Missouri divisions of the Army of the Frontier, which were resting and refitting at Springfield. Exactly. Well, anyway, Heron replied that he'd hold his divisions ready to return to Arkansas at a moment's notice to support Blunt and the Kansas Division. This rapid exchange of messages among the Union commanders in Arkansas and Missouri is a good example of the critical importance of the telegraph line that linked Elkhorn Tavern, Springfield, and St. Louis. It's a small but revealing demonstration of the impact of industrial technology on traditional methods of warfare. And we've seen this before on the podcast, probably most notably with the Army's use of railroads and then also the construction of ironclads. In the Trans-Mississippi, however, while technology could speed the exchange of messages, it was logistics which was the most important factor that dictated the pace and scale of operations. And logistics atop the Ozark Plateau in northwest Arkansas continued to exhibit a distinctly pre-industrial character. 
This can be seen in the fact that although Blunt was chomping at the bit to get going, he had to delay his march to Cane Hill for 24 hours in order to ensure the safe arrival of a train of 200 wagons coming from his supply depot at Fort Scott, Kansas. Much to everyone's relief, the immense commissary train, two miles in length, rumbled into the Union camp at Flint Creek at sunset on November 26, 1862. The next morning, 5,000 Federal soldiers and 30 guns left Flint Creek and headed south on the line road. The four regiments of infantry and six regiments of cavalry were followed by a string of ambulances filled with ammunition. That may sound odd, but Blunt wanted to travel light and fast, and he figured the ambulances could carry ammunition to the fight and then carry the wounded after it. Anyway, because success in catching Marmaduke depended on speed and surprise, each Federal soldier carried only a blanket, three days' rations, and 40 rounds of ammunition. After starting out, Blunt's column made good time across the rolling landscape, covering 15 miles to a place called Cincinnati, where, rather than following the usual route to Cane Hill, Blunt turned east on a lesser-used road. After another five miles, the Federals halted for the night. Well, as you can probably tell from listening to Tracy in that first segment, she's been a bit under the weather, and her voice is, um, yeah, well. Um, the good news is that she feels better than her voice sounds, but still, it looks like I'll be doing the rest of this show solo. Yes, yes, I can hear those groans of disappointment. You'll just have to deal with it. All right, here we go. So, on the crisp, clear autumn morning of Friday, November 28th, the Federals rolled out of their blankets and formed ranks with as little noise as possible. Sergeant Sherman Bodwell of the 11th Kansas Infantry noted in his diary, marched at six without drum or bugle. And so, moving with as much stealth and swiftness as a 19th century army could manage, Blunt's troops quickly reached a place called Ray's Mill and turned south on a, quote, obscure and unfrequented track called Ridge Road. A short time later, the Federals encountered the ridge that gives the road its name, but which was actually the northern extension of Cane Hill. Progress slowed to a crawl as men and animals struggled up the steep incline. Now, Cane Hill, despite its name, isn't actually a hill at all, but a broad, rolling plateau bordered by steep bluffs to the east and north. And by the time of the Civil War, the plateau was carpeted with fields of wheat and corn. The only settlements of note were Boonesboro and Newburgh, which are known today as Cane Hill and Clyde. Both villages were located in the valley of Jordan Creek. Marmaduke's headquarters were located at Kidd's Mill, midway between Boonesboro and Newburgh. Late the previous afternoon, that is, November 27th, a courier galloped up with alarming news. 
A few hours earlier, a Confederate cavalry patrol had spotted a sizable column of Union infantry, horsemen, and artillery passing through Cincinnati. Well, John Marmaduke had been in command of Hindman's cavalry division for a little more than a month, and he was anxious to prove himself in battle. But he had no illusions about his ability to go toe-to-toe with a strong Yankee force with his 1,800 poorly armed cavalrymen and a half-dozen light artillery pieces. Moreover, he never lost sight of the fact that his expedition to Cane Hill was logistical in nature, and his primary responsibility was the safety of the food and forage he had gathered. Around midnight, therefore, Marmaduke concluded that the only sensible course of action was to withdraw back to the south side of the Boston Mountains. While the heavily laden commissary wagons rumbled off south on Cove Creek Road, Marmaduke met with his officers to plan a delaying action. He placed his largest brigade, Colonel Joseph Shelby's 1,200 Missourians, on the Cincinnati Road immediately northwest of Boonesboro. Shelby's right flank was anchored in the village cemetery, which occupied a steep bluff overlooking the Jordan Creek Valley. His left flank was located on rising ground about a half mile to the west. Artillery support was provided by Captain James Bledsoe's battery of two antique six-pound smoothbores that had seen service in the Mexican War. Marmaduke and Shelby expected the Federals to arrive from the northwest on the well-traveled Cincinnati Road. Neither rebel officer demonstrated much concern about the Fayetteville Road, which approaches Boonesboro from the northeast and runs through the Jordan Valley just below the cemetery. They left that road unguarded except for a few pickets. This proved to be a critical error because the Federals marched from Ray's Mill to Cane Hill on Ridge Road, which joins the Fayetteville Road about one mile northeast of Boonesboro. When the head of the Yankee column reached the junction with the Fayetteville Road a little before 10 o'clock on the morning of Friday the 28th, Blunt told his favorite subordinate, Colonel William Cloud, commander of the 3rd Brigade, to push down the valley and drive in Marmaduke's pickets. Cloud only had immediately on hand Major James Fiss's battalion of the 2nd Kansas Cavalry and two mountain howitzers of Lieutenant Elias Stover's 2nd Kansas Battery. While Cloud advanced down the Fayetteville Road, Blunt remained near the junction, with the only other unit that had arrived there, Captain John Rabb's 2nd Indiana Battery. Blunt intended to provide instructions to each regiment and battery as it arrived from Ray's Mill, but several minutes ticked by without any sign of the rest of the Kansas Division. The Federal commander began to fidget with impatience. Then came a crackle of gunfire as Cloud encountered rebel pickets, and Blunt could wait no longer. He dispatched a staff officer, Major Verplank Van Antwerp, to ride back and hurry everyone forward. Meanwhile, Joe Shelby had trouble of his own. When his pickets on Fayetteville Road came scrambling back toward Boonesboro with Yankee cavalry in hot pursuit, he hadn't completed deploying his forces. With unusual honesty, he later admitted, quote, 
I must confess, though it may reflect somewhat upon myself, that the enemy, by his skillful management, fell upon me sooner than I would have desired. End quote. And to make matters worse, the Federals were approaching from an unexpected direction, the Northeast. Shelby realized at once that if the oncoming enemy seized the junction of the Cincinnati and Fayetteville roads, a few hundred yards east of the cemetery, his brigade would be cut off from the rest of Marmaduke's command. This would leave Marmaduke with less than 700 men to protect the recently departed wagon train. What Shelby needed was time to move his Missourians into a more effective blocking position across the Fayetteville Road. And so he rode into the cemetery on the far right of his line, where Captain Bledsoe had positioned his six-pound smoothbores amidst the headstones. It was ten o'clock when Shelby instructed Bledsoe to open fire and keep the Yankees at bay as long as possible. From his position 400 yards north of the cemetery, Cloud saw the muzzle flash from a rebel cannon and then ducked as a shell exploded overhead. He called on Stover to deploy his two 12-pounder mountain howitzers and return the rebel cannon fire. Meanwhile, at the first crash of artillery fire, Blunt sent Rab's 2nd Indiana battery into the fray. Rab hustled down the valley and unlimbered his four six-pound rifles and two six-pound smoothbores near Stover's mountain howitzers. The battalion of Kansas horsemen dismounted to support the Union guns. In the meantime, on the Confederate side, a pair of two-inch mountain rifled guns from Captain John Shoup's Arkansas battery joined Bledsoe's two guns, evening the odds somewhat. Between 10 o'clock and 11 o'clock, the fighting here at the cemetery was limited to an exchange of artillery fire. The only fatality occurred when a shell from a rebel gun killed a man and two horses in Rab's battery. While all this was happening, Major Van Antwerp discovered why the Union column on Ridge Road had stalled. You see, the next unit in line of march behind 5th's Battalion of the 2nd Kansas Cavalry was the 11th Kansas, an infantry regiment. Sandwiched between mounted units, the 11th's commander, Colonel Thomas Ewing, had driven his men at a killing pace all morning, but after hustling up the northern bluff of Cane Hill, Ewing called a halt in a patch of woods one mile short of the Fayetteville Road in order to rest his troops and allow stragglers to catch up. Ewing allowed his foot soldiers to rest right in the narrow road rather than move aside to allow the mounted forces behind him to proceed. Ewing was well-connected, hot-tempered, and used to getting his own way. When Lieutenant Colonel Owen Bassett, commanding the other two battalions of the 2nd Kansas Cavalry, asked Ewing to clear the road, he refused. Ewing's pig-headedness brought the entire federal column to a halt. Van Antwerp reached the traffic jam back the road, just as Stover's and Bledsoe's batteries fired the opening shots of the battle. One Union soldier later recalled how, quote, The sound of the guns roused the boys and was received with yells from one end of the column to the other. 
Shouting over the excited cheers of the troops, Van Antwerp informed Bassett that the rest of the 2nd Kansas was needed urgently at the front. He also told Ewing, in no uncertain terms, to move his command out of the road and allow the cavalry and artillery to advance. Urged on by Van Antwerp, the Kansas horsemen hurried toward the sound of the guns. They were followed by Major Albert Ellithorpe's 1st Indian Home Guard, composed of Creeks and Seminoles, and Captain Henry Hopkins' Kansas Battery. Everyone in the division called Hopkins' outfit the Trophy Battery because its guns had been captured from the Confederates a month earlier. When the advancing Federals reached the Fayetteville Road, they encountered an immensely relieved Blunt, who waved them onward with shouts of encouragement. Meanwhile, miffed at having been scolded by a staff officer, Ewing ordered his men to drop their packs and follow the cavalry and guns at the double quick, and so the infantrymen of the 11th Kansas hurried forward with the rest of the division following. Each commander missed an opportunity to land a telling blow during the opening phase of the battle. Had Blunt managed things better, he could have charged into Boonesboro with several regiments of Union cavalry and driven a wedge between Shelby's brigade and the rest of Marmaduke's command. On the other side of the field, Marmaduke could have attacked and overrun the Federal guns on Fayetteville Road any time during the first hour of the engagement had he realized Shelby's right flank was threatened during that time by only a relative handful of Yankees. But the brief window of opportunity passed while the opposing commanders struggled to get a handle on the situation. Marmaduke joined Shelby during the hour-long artillery duel and then watched the rapid buildup of Union forces in the Jordan Valley. Because the Confederate commander didn't submit a report on Cane Hill, it's impossible to follow his movements with any certainty, but from the statements of others, it's obvious Marmaduke took an active part in the battle and was, as Shelby noted, quote, everywhere upon the field. At any rate, a little before noon, Marmaduke directed Shelby to fall back from the cemetery, and as soon as the rebel guns had limbered up and rattled away, Shelby directed the rest of his brigade to withdraw through Boonesboro. As the Confederates fell back, the Federals were preparing to advance. After deploying the cavalrymen of the 2nd Kansas and positioning the guns of the trophy battery, Colonel Cloud watched as the panting foot soldiers of the 11th Kansas arrived on the scene. He put them into line also, and then, with everything ready, at Cloud's command, 1,500 cheering Yankees swept forward toward Boonesboro, with drums beating and trumpets blaring. However, Shelby's rebels were already gone from the cemetery. But a handful of stragglers from his command did attempt to make a stand by the stout brick Methodist church in the middle of the village, but they were quickly brushed aside. Then, as the eager Federals continued their charge, they ran up against Colonel Charles Carroll's Arkansas Cavalry Brigade, which was positioned at Kidd's Mill, a stone's throw to the south of Boonesboro. 
Carroll's brigade had a paper strength of 1,700 troopers, but on this day it consisted of fewer than 400 men, half of whom were handicapped by broken-down and ill-shod horses. A section of two mountain howitzers from Shoup's Arkansas battery supported Carroll's line. When the rebel gunners opened fire, Cloud responded by ordering the trophy battery into action. A stream of shells from their three six-pound smoothbores and one 12-pounder howitzer pummeled the Confederate guns and forced them to retreat. As they withdrew, one of the rickety howitzer carriages fell to pieces, but the rebel gunners managed to somehow fix a sling around the 220-pound brass tube and carried it away between two horses. Meanwhile, the Arkansas cavalrymen fired just a few ineffectual volleys from their shotguns before Marmaduke ordered them back also. The withdrawal of Carroll's Arkansans from the vicinity of Kidd's Mill marked the end of the first phase of the Battle of Cane Hill. It was now high noon, and the opposing forces moved toward the hamlet of Newburgh, a half-mile to the south. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. History isn't black and white, yet too often it's presented as such. Grey History the French Revolution is a long-form history podcast dedicated to exploring the ambiguities and nuances of the past. By contrasting both the experiences of contemporaries and the conclusions of historians, Grey History dives into the detail and unpacks one of the most important and disputed events in human history. From a revolution based on hope and liberty to its descent into the infamous Reign of Terror, there's plenty to discuss and plenty of grey to explore. One can't understand the modern world without understanding the French Revolution. So if you're looking for your next long-form, binge-worthy history podcast, one recommended by universities and loved by enthusiasts, then check out Grey History, The French Revolution today. Or simply search for The French Revolution. Marmaduke was determined to keep the Federals as far away as possible from the slow-moving wagons of the Confederate commissary train as they wound their way south on Cove Creek Road, heading for safety on the south side of the Boston Mountains. 
And so the rebel commander assembled his command in plain sight atop an imposing hill outside Newburgh, and practically invited Blunt to attack. Blunt rode to the front and examined the position occupied by the Confederates. Aware that he'd fumbled the opening assault on Shelby's position, Blunt took pains to concentrate the entire Kansas division before launching another attack. Marmaduke had no intention of actually making a stand, though, and was simply buying time for the wagons. And, as he'd hoped, the Federals required the better part of an hour to regroup and deploy before continuing the fight. It was no easy task to get everyone into position for what Blunt hoped would be a fight to the finish, and it wasn't until around one o'clock that the Union commander directed Rab to kick off what was supposed to be round two of the battle by opening fire on the Confederate-occupied hill with his guns. Before Rab could do so, though, Lieutenant Marcus Tenney's first Kansas battery rolled up, and Blunt told him to unlimber his half-dozen, ten-pound parrot rifles near Rab's battery and join in the bombardment. Well, Rab and Tenney got off about ten or twelve rounds before Marmaduke decided it was time to go, and the rebels disappeared behind the brow of the hill and sped away to the south. Caught off guard by this unexpected development, Blunt ordered every available regiment and battery to set off immediately in pursuit of the withdrawing Confederates. Within minutes, the narrow road was crowded with a surging mass of men, horses, and artillery. During the chaotic running fight that followed, the front of the Union column skirmished with the rear of the rebel column, quote, without much damage occurring to either party, according to Blunt. And he was in a position to know, since he was so close to the action, that he fired repeatedly at the enemy with his Henry rifle. Whether Blunt hit anyone is unclear, but some bullets found their mark in the melee. An officer of the 11th Kansas observed that, quote, All along the road during the pursuit were scattered dead and wounded men and horses, marking spots that had been hotly contested. A mile south of Newburgh, the road descends into the valley of Fly Creek and turns sharply east. Fly Creek separates the rolling plateau of Cane Hill from the rugged slopes of the Boston Mountains. The Confederates splashed across the stream and reached the base of Reed's Mountain, a mass of hard sandstone that rises 400 feet above the surrounding terrain. It now was a little after 2 o'clock, and Marmaduke was becoming alarmed by Blunt's tenacity. Unless Marmaduke checked the Federal pursuit and did so soon, the rapidly withdrawing rebels would inevitably run up the back of their slowly moving wagon train, which, needless to say, would be a disaster. And so the Confederate commander decided to make a stand on Reed's Mountain. At first he formed a line along the base of the mountain, but then thought better of it and moved his men to a more defensible position on a densely forested bench about one-third of the way to the top. The main rebel line straddled the road 
with a shorter second line across the road near the crest. Anxious soldiers from Arkansas and Missouri gripped their weapons and waited for the Yankees to come within range. The second phase of the Battle of Cane Hill was about to begin. The helter-skelter pursuit from Newburgh left the Kansas Division strung out and disorganized. The first Federals to arrive in front of Reed's Mountain were Blunt, Cloud, Bassett's Battalion of the 2nd Kansas Cavalry, and Colonel William Phillips' 3rd Indian Home Guard, a total of less than a thousand men. A quick survey of the daunting terrain and brushy woods convinced Blunt that, as he later said, quote, the mountain could be taken in no other way except by storm. And so Blunt directed Cloud to form a line of battle and attack at once. Phillips' Cherokees dismounted and formed a heavy skirmish line across the road opposite Shelby's Confederates, who were on the rebel left. Many of the Indians were Confederate veterans of Pea Ridge who had changed sides in recent months. But when Phillips gave the order to advance, they surged up the slope, whooping and yelling. A Union officer described the scene, saying, Phillips' Indians, gallantly led by that excellent officer, advanced from tree to tree, pouring an incessant and galling fire into the foe, who finally gave back step by step up the steep and rocky mountain slope. The second Kansas dismounted and moved up the slope on foot to the left of the Cherokees. Shortly after the Federal advance began, the infantry of the 11th Kansas appeared, having jogged all the way from Newburgh at the double quick. A third of their number had fallen out along the way from sheer exhaustion, but the remainder somehow found the strength to keep going. Blunt directed Ewing to form on the right of the 3rd Indian and join the attack. The soldiers of the 11th Kansas were equipped with old 72 caliber Prussian muskets that were so unwieldy the men referred to them as light artillery. But the Federals also enjoyed an advantage in real artillery. Shortly after the attack began, shells started to crash into the rebel lines on Reed's Mountain from 14 guns and howitzers that had somehow pushed their way to the front through the chaotic mob of Yankees advancing down the road. In any case, Confederate resistance gradually weakened under this relentless hammering, and as the Union soldiers made steady progress up the slope. Ammunition for the Confederates' carbines and shotguns also started to run low. By four o'clock, Marmaduke concluded that nothing more could be done, and he abandoned the unequal contest. After making a stand for the better part of two hours, the rebels mounted up and resumed their withdrawal. Minutes later, a ragged line of Cherokees and Kansans reached the crest of Reed's Mountain and waved the stars and stripes for the benefit of their comrades in the valley below. And that ended the second and most intense phase of the battle. Blunt reached the top of Reed's Mountain, determined to keep after the withdrawing Confederates, 
but he discovered that the troopers of the 3rd Indian and 2nd Kansas Cavalry had left their horses below, and the exhausted infantrymen of the 11th Kansas could barely put one foot in front of the other. He was about to send a courier down the mountain with a call for additional troops, but just then a column of horsemen arrived on the scene. They belonged to Colonel William Judson's 6th Kansas Cavalry. Blunt welcomed Judson to the mountaintop and straightaway resumed the pursuit of the rebels. The third and final phase of the battle was fought almost entirely on the Union side by the troopers of the 6th Kansas, supported by two batteries of mountain howitzers. The 2nd Kansas, which had been in the fight from the very beginning, ran out of ammunition and abandoned the chase, while the 3rd Indian and 11th Kansas attempted to keep up on foot but soon were left behind. Other regiments and batteries crowded forward on the narrow road, but a frustrated officer recalled that the sound of battle, quote, was always just ahead, far enough, however, to prevent our participating. James Blunt was in his element. He seemed not to notice, or not to care, that he was now pursuing Marmaduke with little more than a single regiment. An officer in the 6th Kansas said, All this time Blunt was at the very head of our column, urging the men on, directing their movements, and occasionally taking a crack himself. It was now far into the afternoon on a late November day, and daylight was fading fast. The east slope of Reed's Mountain was already in deep shadow. The Confederates only had to hold off the Federals for another hour, and darkness would end the fighting. Marmaduke directed his subordinates to delay the oncoming Yankees by deploying successive lines of horsemen across the road, with orders to fire a few rounds and then retire behind the next line. Colonel Emmett MacDonald reported that, quote, In this way, we fought them over the mountains, fighting at one point, falling back, forming, and fighting again. Each of these half-dozen or so skirmishes along the road lasted only a few minutes, but they succeeded in slowing, if not stopping, the Federals. Shortly before five o'clock, Blunt paused to assess the situation. Just ahead, Cove Creek Road descended into a narrow valley that winds through the Boston Mountains. Blunt later explained how, quote, It was now near sundown, and darkness must soon put an end to the pursuit. Down the valley in front of us, the ground appeared adapted to the use of cavalry to good advantage, and I determined to make an effort to capture their artillery, of which they had six pieces. And so Blunt and Judson galloped after the Confederates at the head of a single battalion of the 6th Kansas Cavalry, a force of perhaps 250 men, led by Lieutenant Colonel Lewis Jewell. The Kansans quickly closed the distance and in moments had collided with the rebel rear guard, commanded by Colonel Carroll. Blunt was in the thick of the action. He reportedly shot an enemy horseman with his pistol at point-blank range. The mass of slashing and shooting Union and Confederate cavalry swept south through the gathering darkness. Blunt appeared to be on the verge of capturing not only the rebel artillery, but also a good portion of the rear guard as well. 
Carol was effectively on his own, since Marmaduke and Shelby had ridden on ahead in the mistaken belief that the fight was essentially over. But Carol realized that the Federals were, quote, pushing the rear with great energy, end quote, and had to be stopped. Ahead, the narrow valley broadened into a cove, or hollow, and there Carroll placed an Arkansas Cavalry Regiment and part of a Missouri Regiment, about 400 men in all, up on a brush-covered bench overlooking the east side of the road, and he told them to fire into the flank of the Yankees. He then deployed 85 men from another Arkansas Regiment across the road, a short distance to the south, where the cove ends and the narrow valley resumes. In the deepening twilight, the hard-pressed Confederate rear guard and the vanguard of the pursuing Federal column entered the cove. When the enemy passed in front of the bench, the concealed rebels blasted them with a volley that filled the road with a tangle of fallen men and horses. At least six Yankees went down, including Lieutenant Colonel Jewell, who suffered a nasty wound to his hip. A trooper at Blunt's side was hit, and a buckshot passed through the crown of his hat, but the Federal commander escaped injury. The psychological impact of the unexpected ambush was terrific, though. Blunt acknowledged that the Confederates, quote, opened upon us a most destructive fire, which for the moment caused my men to recoil and give back, in spite of my own efforts and those of other officers to rally them. And, indeed, stunned Union cavalrymen broke off the pursuit and fell back to the north end of the cove, about 300 yards from the ambush site. With the Federals in temporary disarray, Carroll acted swiftly to get his men to safety. While all of this was taking place, Cloud arrived on the scene with assorted fragments of the Kansas Division, which had been rushing pell-mell down the road, including, incredibly, some infantrymen from the 11th Kansas, who must have had the endurance of marathon runners. Well, anyhow, as Blunt was trying to get things situated so he could continue the pursuit, a rebel, one of Carroll's staff officers, appeared waving a white flag. He proposed that both sides remove their wounded before resuming hostilities. Blunt reluctantly agreed, even though he suspected that the real purpose of the truce was to use up the last minutes of daylight. And he was right. By the time the wounded were recovered, it was six o'clock, the Confederates were gone, and darkness covered the landscape. The Battle of Cane Hill was over. Clashes between mounted forces in the Civil War generally produced few casualties compared to infantry fights, and the eight-hour running engagement at Cane Hill was no exception. Blunt reported 45 Union casualties, eight killed, 36 wounded, and one captured. Among the dead was Lieutenant Colonel Jewell of the 6th Kansas Cavalry, who died from his hip wound on November 30th. Confederate losses are less certain, but a total of 10 killed and 70 wounded or missing seems probable. 
All in all, given the duration of the fight and the number of troops involved, the butcher's bill at Cane Hill was remarkably low. As day turned to night on November 28th, the weary Confederates continued plodding down Cove Creek Road and bivouacked on the south side of the Boston Mountains. An anxious Marmaduke sent off a message to Hindman, informing him of the day's events. When the sun rose the next morning, with, thankfully, no sign of Federal activity, Marmaduke was nevertheless still smarting at having been run out of Cane Hill in such an unceremonious fashion. But in reality, he and his subordinates had performed well in a fluid and dangerous situation, and thereby saved the all-important commissary train from capture or destruction. From the Confederate perspective, then, Cane Hill was a setback, not a defeat. The Federals naturally saw things differently. The colorful and combative James Blunt expressed himself in his trademark style when he informed Curtis that he had, quote, whipped and routed Marmaduke and sent him flying across the mountains. He wrote an even more exuberant message to Schofield, saying that he had attacked Marmaduke and, quote, thrashed him out of his boots and breeches and fought him for ten miles over the Boston mountains in his retreat until night closed the conflict. Significantly, rather than return north to Flint Creek, Blunt decided to make Cane Hill his new base of operations. Two brigades settled into camps at Boonesboro and Newburgh, while the other brigade marched back to Ray's Mill to establish a secure depot for the division's trains. Blunt believed, erroneously, that rather than just breaking up an enemy enemy foraging expedition, he had actually single-handedly nipped a new Confederate offensive in the bud. And so he mistakenly advised Curtis that, quote, it is evident they intended making a desperate effort to force their way north, end quote. The ease of his victory in quashing this supposed rebel effort to again strike up into Missouri convinced Blunt that Hindman's army was an empty shell, and with the approach of bad weather, there was little to fear from the Confederates in the immediate future. He concluded that, quote, The enemy are badly whipped and will probably not venture north of the Boston Mountains again this winter. But in that assessment and prediction, Blunt was wrong as wrong can be, since the rebels were still full of fight, and they would, in fact, waste little time in coming north of the mountains again. That's because Blunt's lunge from Flint Creek to Cane Hill had carried him that much closer to Hindman. The Kansas Division was now more than 100 miles south of Herons supporting Missouri divisions at Springfield, but only 35 miles north of Hindman's base in the Arkansas Valley. Brooding over his rough treatment at Cane Hill, Marmaduke was the first to realize that Hindman had been presented with an extraordinary opportunity to reverse the course of the war in the Trans-Mississippi, 
because if the Confederates acted quickly, they could overwhelm the isolated Kansas division and then press on to even greater things. Marmaduke therefore urged Hindman to move against Blunt at once, saying, quote, I am fully convinced that no force is sufficiently near to give him support in case you attack him. And Thomas Hindman needed little convincing. Energized by the possibility of ending 1862 on a winning note, he issued orders putting the Trans-Mississippi Army in motion. Taking place in an obscure corner of the Arkansas countryside, Cane Hill isn't a well-known engagement, even among Civil War buffs. But the remarkable 12-mile-long running battle set the stage for a far more significant clash of arms that determined the fate of Arkansas, Missouri, and the Indian Territory. Because just nine days after the guns fell silent at Cane Hill, they erupted again at a place called Prairie Grove. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And since we don't have a book specifically about the fight at Cane Hill to mention, we thought we'd take this opportunity to recommend a book that doesn't have anything to do with Cane Hill or Prairie Grove, but that we picked up recently and has really impressed us. Civil War Battlefields, Walking the Trails of History by David T. Gilbert was on our wish list for a while. Well, since it came out last spring, I guess. And we just finally broke down and got it. And wow, just wow. There's more to this book than the photographs taken at over 30 battlefields, but the photos are the heart of the book, and they are simply amazing. Um, this is a great book for yourself, or as a gift for someone who is a Civil War buff, because you won't have to worry about whether they'll like it. They'll love it. So that's Civil War Battlefields, Walking the Trails of History by David T. Gilbert. And you can head over to the podcast website and find a handy list of all our book recommendations going back to episode number one. And that's at www.civilwarpodcast.org. Also at the website, you can start the process to join the ranks of the Strawfoot Brigade. And by doing so, you'll not only be financially supporting the podcast, which we appreciate, but you'll get access to over 60 members' episodes on the website, which we hope you appreciate. Well, thanks to Matthew, John, Jason, and Sean, who all joined this past week. And then as we wrap things up for this week, we wanted to give continuing thanks to Spiritwood Music for giving us permission to use their lovely song, Midnight on the Water, as the music you hear at the beginning and end of every episode of the podcast. All right, hopefully Tracy will be ready to go next time when we talk about the Battle of Prairie Grove. But thanks for hanging in there and listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Tracy and I do hope you join us again next week, but until then, 
take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye.